welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Brittany Melton. And I'm your co-host, Laura Muñoz. And today we're joined by Sarah Cornwell. Sarah, thank you for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. So, Sarah, I know that you study languages and information, so can you broadly talk to us a little bit more about what you do? Uh, Yeah, so I'm a PhD student in the Library and Information Sciences program at BIMS, and my research is in how people who speak multiple languages uh, use them to solve uh, their day-to-day life information problems. So when you have a question and you need information to solve it, how do you go about doing that? Um, It builds on uh, my general passion for languages. I got previously got my master's degree in linguistics also here at Western. That actually was my first question was going to be, did you come out of a linguistics background? Because this seems really like the perfect combination of information and linguistics in some way that they're like to come out of this passion of language and not have some sort of background in linguistics would seem crazy. I mean, I am somebody who has bounced all over the place when it comes to subject matter expertise. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think library sciences is actually a good place for those people because, you know, libraries are about holding all of the world's information. So um, if you like a ton of different topics like I do, then it's a good place. Um, Yeah, I did my undergrad at the University of Guelph, actually, in their arts and science, like dual program in cognitive psychology and anthropology because they didn't have a linguistics program, which I only learned after I got there. These don't seem actually super disconnected. Like when you say them, actually, I can really map out exactly where you come from. Like it makes a lot of sense, actually, in that this like it is a broad interest, but it is actually perfectly homed within LIS. Like that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I did an undergraduate thesis that was about how people learn a second language as adults. And I kind of like the idea of that program was that you're supposed to try and draw the sciences and the arts together. So I tried to talk about like the changes that happen in your brain when you learn an additional language, as well as the changes that happen socially. So even though those are in different fields, you know, as much as we can say that I don't know, everything's all interconnected, you know, it's a net, it's a web, right? Yeah. Uh, as much as they're in different fields, I mean, I've really been studying the same thing just from different um, like facets or different viewpoints. And now more specifically about your research, what's the type of question that you're trying to answer about uh, how information and languages relate? Well, um, basically in my first year, I came into the program and I knew that like I liked languages, but I wasn't sure where I could find a space to research them in library and information sciences. And I took a class with uh, Paulette Rothbauer Um, called information practice and it was just all about like when you have a problem and you need information to solve it how do you solve it and I was like oh this is great for this class I'm gonna write a class paper about all of the research that will have been done about bilinguals because I came out of a linguistics degree and just expected everyone to care about linguistics Uh, and then I found like four papers (laughs) and I was like oh So there's actually a lot of space here um, to look at, like, actually, how do um, people who have access to multiple languages use them? Because so much, I mean, information practice and information behavior is a fairly new field. It comes out of we're using card catalog, like using card catalogs and having modern libraries and like what's the most efficient way to use a card catalog or like 
if you were an engineer back in the days before computers and you had to like use books that were just full of number tables in order to like solve statistics and engineering problems um, because doing the calculations by hand was so much work. So the field kind of rose out of those studies of professionals and like, how do you solve these problems? Or like uh, doctors diagnosing someone, like how do you use the information that you have and then match it up with the information that's in your resources, like your textbooks or um, your online databases? How do you actually put all of these things together to solve a complex problem? And I was like, well, obviously, people who speak multiple languages have access to a greater number of resources. So they must be like an important like group within this field. And then it turned out that almost nobody had tried to look at how, how having access to a completely different set of resources might help make your information behavior like rich and complicated and yeah, yeah it's interesting because I immediately go to and I only speak one language so Laura you may have a very different take on this I immediately went to actually how hard it would be thinking of like when like if I'm talking with friends who are bilingual where they're trying to replace words that they immediately like they think of like Laura you would think like the Spanish word and be like what is the English word what is the English word and have to replace the word and so it's both like extremely rich because you have these two things to draw from but then it can be extremely challenging especially when you've just come back from speaking only Spanish or only English for an extended period of time. And then you're forced to be like, oh, crap, how do I get back to English again? Yeah, actually, when I was reading about your research, I, I, I thought about myself coming into Canada and to Western and trying to find out where places were. Because UCC doesn't mean anything to me. <laughs> it's like university, center, college. I don't. I don't even know what it actually means, and it wouldn't be something that I will be able to ever remember. So I feel like those things, like even with maps, it was so complicated because I know the words, I know what they mean, but they together don't make like they don't signify anything to me in my brain because I've never used it before. So, for example, following map maps for me in English is very complicated and I'm like of course why didn't we thought about uh, how these will affect people life where they come from other backgrounds and that, that makes me want to have so many follow-up <laughs> questions actually because um, so for my research um, because there wasn't a lot already of foundational like groundwork of like how do bilinguals do this I mean there's a lot of research in linguistics about how bilinguals use multiple languages but there's nothing very much at least focused on how um, they use them specifically to solve information problems. There was like one paper from the 90s about translators solving problems of translation. So like, you know, they need high quality dictionaries. They need, um, this was in like the early days of machine translation um, being like more widely accessible. So like they need like the, whatever the precursor to Google Translate was, you know, they need, um, like books like uh, I think they're called like Rousseau's or like like thesaurus it Rogers Rogers thesauruses and like things that help you do conjugations but nobody was like oh well like we need maps <laughs> that are in two <laughs> languages um, there is like a whole separate subfield that's way more well established of information practice about how people use information to do wayfinding and there's some really interesting ones where like they have people come in and and draw like how do you conceive of your neighborhood like mm. in terms of like 
well, I need to know where the bus stops are. I need to know where the dog park is. I need to, but then there are some things where you're like, there are a bunch of stores there, but I never go to them. So I don't even know what's there. Yeah. My, like, I have so many follow-ups too, because I mean, we're not in the same field, but we are in neighboring fields in the sense yeah. of media studies, let alone building-wise, also just study-wise. Because <laughs> my immediate thought is like, uh, are you considering how technology affects this? Because, I mean, now we have the ability, something I think is quite new. I don't know how accessible it is in the sense of like if you're coming from a different country and trying to use that Google photo thing translator where it like literally translate what what translates what's in the photo but then also how people make community around um speaking multiple languages like there's like so many things in my head so i'm gonna zone in on one the first is technology so like are we considering are you considering in your research how technology affects how people are like using their uh, multiple languages yes um when i started my research i really wanted to try and get the biggest picture possible. So I'm tried to recruit people who speak as many different languages as possible. And I wanted to talk to people about as many different sources of information as possible. So yeah, I included mm. um, technology as an information source. Um, and I think that's probably one of the reasons that the field hasn't been more well developed because at the beginning, everything was about paper. And if you immigrated to say London, Ontario, there are, <laughs> so many people here who speak a non-English language, but the library resources are still mostly English. Um, people who do speak an additional language and additionally to English usually also have some English fluency. So it is like a very English dominant place. Um, so a lot of the research, if it looked at people who were multilinguals, mostly looked at immigrants and was all about improving their English fluency in order to improve their information seeking and improve their information problem solving. They were like, well, English is the solution because English is the language of this place. But nowadays when you can use Google in whatever language you want, I mean, you might not get as good resources uh, depending on the language. And some of my participants talked about that. Um, but there are all sorts of like technological innovations. Yeah, absolutely. That's so interesting. And I would like to dig a little bit deeper into your actual participants. So I have sure. two questions. One is like, how do you find the participants that will be part of your study? Because like, do you plan to incorporate people from different languages or different backgrounds, like academic versus others? I don't know. And the second question will be, uh, which kind of questions do you ask them? <laughs> okay, so I started um, and my idea was I just really wanted to get as broad as possible and get like as much diversity of experiences as possible. But I knew I had to narrow it at least a little bit. So I thought because most of the research that's spoken to multilinguals has focused on um, recent immigrants or international students. So I thought I don't want to look at people who just came to London because I had a feeling that a lot of the conversations would tend towards their barriers or their struggles. And I wanted to instead look at people who have lived here for a long time, but still find value in their non-English language and their additional languages um, and who use them frequently, even despite the kind of like oppressively English. I say this as like a native English speaker who really has poor fluency in any of the other languages I've studied. So 
monolingual is I'm not using it as a slur but <laughs> I think that's a beautiful approach because you're like you're integrated you clearly have survived here for 30 years so you clearly can access information and you're dealing with like daily life basis but still do you find things that are problematic about uh just having yeah. English as your source of information. So I did want to hear about their struggles, but I also wanted to hear about like their non-English language successes. Like mm -hmm. what is your non-English language? What value does it give? Like I know there's a Hispanic uh, Spanish speaking newspaper that's published in London. Um, actually, my participant who told me about that told me about it pre-COVID. So I hope it's not dead now, um, but like Latino. Um, there are WeChat groups in Mandarin um, that like translate and publish the London newspapers into uh, Mandarin, Chinese. Um, so Chinese speakers can read all the local London news that's been translated by someone locally. Um, the Korean grocery store has a Korean newspaper that comes from Toronto, but there are like ads for kind of like Korean businesses across this like Southern Ontario. Um, and I just wanted to see like what kind of stuff is out there and like where do you find value in your non-English languages? And I'm not done analyzing my data yet. Um, but I found like they're really important to people's identity, obviously. Um, but they're, and they're important a lot for things that are connected to the culture of that language. So if you're going to travel to a country where that language is spoken, a lot of people like to use, like a few of my participants talked about wanting to speak to a travel agent um, who has fluency. So um, a Mandarin speaking participant also, she told me that she always goes to a Mandarin speaking travel agent because then she knows that they're getting um, legitimate information. They don't have to deal with a translator. Um, and she knows that then nothing has to be translated. Nobody has to put anything in English. So um, it's always just in the language that it needs to be in. Um, a lot of people talk to me about using their additional language to find media in that language. So like loving like samba music as a Spanish speaker or reggaeton or um, of course like uh, Tamil music and music from the south of India. Um, apparently, my Tamil speaking participant told me that Spotify doesn't use the Tamil alphabet. So they have to use like the English alphabet in Tamil to search for Tamil music. Those are the <laughs> kinds of workarounds that I wanted to hear about yeah. so that I can share them with people who maybe like are Tamil and were like, I just tried using my alphabet and it didn't work. And I tried searching a translation in English and that didn't work. So like, where do you find a third way <laughs> I like like it's um so beautiful like it has such your work has such interesting like actual application in the sense that sometimes my my own work included I'm like I don't know who this helps where yours I'm like that can help so many people just to have like it's it's nice to hear what other people do it's interesting to hear how people like build their community find identity among one another and then and and how they find those workarounds but then also doing it not in toronto because obviously we know like toronto is incredibly like hailed as being this multicultural pl place same with vancouver so then doing it like pulling the focus onto london which is like it's still an like i would say an, a quite a multicultural place it definitely is and not just surrounding the university itself like the uh, like every other part of the city as well and so then actually looking into 
like how people who aren't living in Toronto make the make these things happen. London is such a weird place. And yeah. Like, as someone who grew up around here, dealt with it for a long time, it's like the only city for miles and miles and miles. So it has to serve all of these like rural populations, but then it's also gotten quite big in the process. But it seems like sometimes Londoners are like, I don't know. It's like a small city mentality, but like there's actually a ton of people here and there's a ton of languages and there's a ton of multilingualism. Um, London definitely struggles between that, like um, the mentality of it has the same mentality as my hometown of Dresden, Ontario with 3000 people and that they feel very, um, I would say, quite like nationalist national like and a very uh like small town community vibe but it's not a small town like in this <laughs> i think it's like half a million people now so like in comparison the way that they like i and and i say they but i feel like they is probably maybe 50 percent of the population maybe less of like people who have been here since i don't know like the 80s <laughs> like i'm trying to think of when this even started this like this mentality but but this actually leads me to my next question because you are from around London yeah like an actually like small town yes. close to London and you speak English yep. so how did you manage to recruit people that uh, from different communities and different backgrounds that you will probably wouldn't be that much in contact with or were you uh, connected with them through some other ways well um it helped that I had done a linguistics degree because that immediately connects you to people who are passionate about languages, um, many of whom spoke additional languages themselves. Uh, I put up posters that got me a few people, but a lot of it was snowball sampling. Like I just talked to everybody that I could about my research. And, um, you know, if I talked to people with an accent, I'd just like kindly wait until they brought up their second language. And then I'm like, you know, <laughs> You would be a good <laughs> candidate for my research. Uh, just like inviting people to um, to talk to me about their language use all the time. And luckily, people like talking about themselves, I found. So, um, yeah, for sure. <laughs> That's excellent. So it wasn't too hard to recruit, though I will say COVID definitely threw a wrench in it. That's the other Absolutely. thing I wanted to ask, because you have talked a couple of times about COVID. And like, yeah. I feel uh, like you being very a, a very approachable person, you will like to be close to them, talking to them, so they will be comfortable sharing their stories and whatever so i i'm wondering how COVID impacted your research or what what did you manage to do during those times were you able to actually do like zoom interviews or something like that yeah so um my actually initial plan for my research um i like bought a good quality sound recorder and because when i did my linguistics degree i wrote um in phonology which is the study of like specifically like accents and the sounds um that people use when they speak Um, and I specifically researched um, English like English accented speech so I was like uh, my supervisor Yasmin Rafat in the uh, Hispanic Studies Department was starting a collection of um, multilingual speakers voices um, just to allow like linguistic research to be done without having to collect new data because data reuse is actually a great way to do ethical research because especially with something like phonology there are hundreds of measurements that you can make of somebody's speech 
um, way too many to do in any one research study. So if you have like a large, high quality body of audio recordings, you can, um, especially naturalistic speech like you would be using when you're having like a casual conversation, you can use that to find out all kinds of interesting things uh, about people's language production. Um, uh, let me tell you something. <laughs> when you don't speak the same language, like not uh, from from birth, like yeah. uh, that helps a lot because you will like use your hands more, your eyes more in order to communicate because you need help. <laughs> like yeah. I don't know, I don't remember this word, but I know that you know what I'm thinking because I'm making gestures. So <laughs> I'm pointing at it. <laughs> exactly. Um, that's super useful. Yeah, and a lot of those things come out in your speech, like maybe like, well, how quickly do you speak with this person? How much are you accommodating to their speech? And like, I had all these ideas about like, I'm not going to use this data for phonological research, but I'll collect it and then I'll donate it to the archive and that'll be great. And then COVID happened and my high quality sound recorder is just <laughs> sitting in a desk drawer somewhere. So like collecting <laughs> dust. Yeah, exactly. Collecting dust. Um, so I had to like go through ethics again and because Zoom, there are additional risks because it's over the internet. So you could ha like, it's not like someone's going to bug my interview room in the North Campus, like in the FIMS building. Um, so, you know, I had to like redo my letter of information and redo like my recording protocol. And instead I just got a bunch of like kind of poor quality Zoom recordings that aren't good for being reused. So I'm just going to delete them afterwards for like data safety, but oh yeah, was, I was that was say. disappointing. Even though I wasn't going to use that data myself, I was like, this the is prospect. just a bonus way that it could be useful to linguistic students who want to like the data research. sharing of it all. Yeah, I think that's really because uh, I mean I'm working on an ethics amendment right now and it's killing me. And I'm listening to you. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my god, like the zoom of it all. I have to do this too. Yeah. But thinking about like. How the quality of what that data would be, because with if you were specifically looking into speech, you want that to be high quality. Yeah, and you have people have internet issues. Mm -hmm. I mean, but I mean, I think you can silver lining everything. It did allow some people to participate who wouldn't have been able to otherwise. Like one of my French speakers was a new mom, and she was not going to come into the university to do an interview with a tiny baby. Um, and she was also looking after a toddler as well. Um, so it was convenient to do it over Zoom. And she's like, I need a break. And we Aww. can break for 10 minutes. And she's at home. She, Her kids are comfortable. And she could help them however she needed to. And then we could finish the interview. There's also questions of like how, how comfortable people feel coming to the university. I know lots of people around the city of London that don't want to be on the campus. Like don't really feel include I mean that's like a larger question of like how western includes itself in the city but that feel a disconnect from the university as a space so there's like yeah. that as a question too so accessibility yeah. is certainly I mean covid there's pluses and min minuses in both there there were um it's hard to like think about the pluses that I missed out on but there were a lot of pluses and doing things over COVID. One plus that I wish I took advantage of was automatic transcription because I hate transcribing and I didn't put in my ethics automatic transcription. Oh, no. So I had to transcribe everything by hand and it was so painful. Oh. So that's my recommendation to, to <laughs> any grad students who are listening who are doing interview research that requires a transcript. Just put it in your ethics at the beginning. Get it. Yeah. And don't say you're going to do Otter because Otter AI they don't like. So say oh, you're really? using Zoom. <laughs> 
<laughs> but wait, uh, before we just uh, divert, <laughs> I would like to know, I know you haven't uh, completely analyzed your entire data, but I would like to know, it sounds such an interesting uh, research that I would like to know which, if you have been able to notice some, some trends so far or what have you kind of infer from your data so far? There, yeah, uh, there are a few things that I could say like tentatively, uh, having not finished analysis, but just also having done all of the interviews myself and transcribed them myself, I do feel like I have a good yeah. idea of what my participants were getting at. Um, so a lot of them felt uh, that they got a lot of value out of their non-English language, especially around the topics of home and family, um, communicating with their family members, um, just to solve regular everyday life problems like, oh, um, speaking to your sister about your nephew's birthday party next week and trying to figure out what a, what's a good gift for him. Like, when you're both native Spanish speakers, why would you ever have that conversation in English? Yeah, and it's like when you call your mom, like when I call my mom, I'm now like, mom, can you tell me how to prepare this recipe? And she will tell me the ingredients in Spanish. And then I'm like, I'm going to the, I'm going to the groceries and I'm like, hmm, how is the name of something in English is hard but yeah. so it cuts the other way as well uh, one of my participants uh, is a Brazilian Portuguese speaker and her husband is English speaking so whenever he but he's a chef and she's in marketing so Interesting. every time uh, she wanted Brazilian food she would find a good quality authentic Brazilian recipe in Portuguese uh -huh. so that she would be able to figure out what the names of the ingredients were in <laughs> English and then search a second time for a similar enough recipe that was written in English so that she didn't have to do the translation work herself so that her husband could make them both dinner. Smart. Yeah. She's really figured it out. Yes. Oh, she's living the dream. <laughs> <laughs> so so mostly your participants keep using their language in order to do... Well, that was one of the inclusion criteria. So okay. they did have to be using a non-English language regularly okay. because I wanted to talk to people who um, have been keeping it up, like, despite difficulties. So, like, where are they finding space for it? Mm -hmm. Some people didn't have any, like, a lot of multi... Like, other people in their life to speak to, but they still maintained their language through, like, listening to podcasts, mm -hmm. um, Apparently Ubisoft has a great French language dubbing of their video games. So they're really? like, if I ever play a, a Ubisoft game, I always make sure to do it in French because they actually have quality dubbing on like every Fun. software publication nice. company. Yeah. Um, or just reading Wikipedia. That makes sense. Yeah. Before bed. You know, it's a good wind down activity. <laughs> a beautiful wind down activity. I was thinking more and like less of just people who speak two languages and more people who speak more than two in the sense of like potentially if you're if you're bilingual and you use one language like at home or with family or whatever and then one like you feel like you have to use english outside of the house then uh in the situation where people speak three plus languages how are they keeping those up well there were a few patterns and i don't want to say that these are I, I didn't speak to many very many people who spoke more than two languages okay um so i'm really drawing these patterns off of just a couple people's experience but right. i can give you some examples at least that works um so this commonly happened with um muslims because arabic is obviously a very significant language in religion so muslims uh i spoke to somebody who spoke 
Lebanese Arabic, then they were also used standard Arabic, um, and then they also used French because mm. Lebanon used to be a French colony, so they learned French, and then they live in London, so they speak English. Wow. Whoa. Similar. What a brain. <laughs> <laughs> Combining all that information, I that's know. amazing. Uh, similarly, uh, someone who is from uh, Urdu, speaking Pakistan. Uh, so she spoke Urdu, obviously, growing up, but also um, Arabic at the mosque. Uh, and then she still uses Urdu and Arabic in addition to English now that she lives here. Oh, my goodness. I Yeah, trying to process knowing more than one language, let alone at least three. <laughs> oh, and when you're thinking about some of the languages, it's like you speak three languages and they have three different alphabets. That's what I, that was where my brain immediately <laughs> went, was thinking, like, how do you learn these alphabets? I can't keep English. I can only keep the English alphabet. And even that, I still mess up. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, I have some strategies for that too, because I spoke to one person who um, grew up speaking both Hindi and Gujarati at home. Their family is from the Gujarat province of India. Um, and obviously they only learned English in school, so she couldn't read or write Hindi or Gujarat, but she spoke them fluently. Mm. So she had a lot of strategies um, for using the internet in order to get that um, feeling of home, even though she couldn't read. Um, the language. She tried a few times, but it's really difficult mm, to get oh fluent. Gosh. It's difficult enough to get fluent reading one language, right? right. Reading is not a natural process. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's why it takes so much like phonics <laughs> instruction when you're a kid. Um, so she would use YouTube. She would find uh, like vloggers who speak Gujarati and then she would follow vloggers who spoke Gujarati and she was like it was great practice for me listening practice she's like I could also find lots of cooking videos in Hindi or Gujarati so I can make the recipes that you know uh, you can't necessarily find in the equivalent in English mm -hmm. that makes a lot of sense it's like a built-in authenticity filter <laughs> You need to consume it in Gujarati. Yeah. That's amazing. So uh, I, we're running out of time, but I don't want you to leave before I ask you. So you have all this information, and you probably will be ending your PhD soon after you I hope so. finish analyzing <laughs> your data. So what's your plan next? Or do you have a plan? It's okay not to have one. Uh, but do you have any, like, a plan that you want to do next? Do you want to continue uh, working with languages? Or? I have been teaching a couple courses here. I do really like teaching, um, but I don't know. I really like research, too, um, but I feel like that academia is so, just feels like a machine for grinding up smart people and turning them <laughs> into sausage <laughs> yeah turning them into sausage and like a, tying them into bureaucratic knots like I love what the university represents and I love like the opportunities that I've been given to spend you know like seven years of my life <laughs> here just getting to study things that I like and have fun conversations with other students like I love those aspects about the university but I don't know if I could do this as a career I I'm interested in in trying to find a place for research I've been thinking about trying to get into like language revitalization and That'd like really language cool. preservation because Canada has so many indigenous endangered languages and um, of course indigenous people need to be leading the way for the preservation of their own languages, but there's enough work that needs to be done that non-Indigenous people can definitely help when it comes to preserving and um, helping revitalize these That's languages. Which, and protect. Yeah, and protecting them and getting them the same kinds of legal protections that they have in Nunavut. Like, Inuktitut is the only Indigenous language with 
like legal status. Um, I think actually Inuktitan also has legal status in uh, Nunavut, but like there are, are over a hundred other indigenous languages of Canada that deserve the same treatment and the same accessibility. Um, anyway that's amazing I totally <laughs> hope you you can get into whatever you're interested about because you really seem very passionate and all that you do honestly sounds very important like, yeah I'm really happy to hear that there are people working on this I feel like we're we're leaving on such a high note oh, thanks okay <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna take us out guys so this has been Gradcast the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University I've been your host Brittany Melton and my co-host was Laura Munoz Bayana we've been speaking with Sarah Cornwell and this episode was produced by Laura Munoz Bayana um, if you would like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcast.sogs.ca. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Gradcast Radio. To listen to us, we are on Radio Western 94.9 FM, and you can find all of our episodes wherever you find your podcast. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the rest of your day. <laughs>